Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you as always for being with us. Plenty on tonight and we won't miss, if you know what I mean. There is an extraordinary international story. Moscow has stepped up attacks across Ukraine, cutting electricity and killing eight people, including in drone strikes on the Ukraine capital. But this as a Russian warplane crashed near the border. It struck a residential area in a town, Y-E-Y-S-K, pronounce that, in southwest Russia, 13 people were killed and 19 injured. Now, Moscow is thought to be trying to counter battlefield losses in its eight-month war in Ukraine by waging a punitive policy of striking energy facilities before winter. Putin is hoping this will weaken resistance. A taxi driver in Kiev commented on Russian missile strikes raining down on the capital and other cities, killing people, saying, and I quote, they seem to be hitting us every Monday now. Where this ends, who knows? But the crash of the Russian warplane is the 10th reported non-combat crash of a Russian warplane since Moscow sent its troops into Ukraine on February 24. Well, more proof of the complete failure of government to manage our money. And you can't blame the Albanese government. Yesterday, it was Medicare, eight billion, your money wasted. The government's got to get away from reviews and start making decisions. The health minister now says there'll be a review, an independent investigation as to how your eight billion has been wasted through rorts. Well, now it's the National Disability Insurance Scheme and a review, another one, indicates that the scheme will now cost 8.8 billion more than the previous government forecast earlier this year. And by 2025-26, which is only a couple of years away, isn't it? It'll cost more than $50 billion. I think Bill Shorten, though, may be the one person capable of getting on top of this, and we'll talk to him. I'll tell you something that's vomitous. We're now being told next Tuesday we'll see a well-being budget. Ardern in New Zealand's going on with this language. Jim Chalmers, give us a break, Jim. If every budget brought down in the history of the Commonwealth isn't a well-being budget, then it should not have been delivered. If the budget is now about our well-being instead of politicians' well-being, then so it should be. Just while we're talking about your money, we learnt that unpaid tax owed to the New South Wales government has skyrocketed by 171%, unpaid tax, more than a billion dollars. And we're told by an outfit called Revenue New South Wales, which should be titled Lost Revenue New South Wales, there is, and I quote, no current strategy to correct the debt, unquote. Outstanding land, payroll, stamp duty and gaming machine taxes, $1.13 billion unpaid. Wouldn't you like to be able to not pay your taxes and get away with it? The battler can't. And a word read the Reverend Fred Nile, who's New South Wales' longest serving MP after 41 years in Macquarie Street. At the age of 88 and a well-preserved 88, he won't be contesting the next election. Good luck to him. Well, tonight we have it all for you. The floods are not a climate change phenomenon, and I'll give you a bit of history about that. But nonetheless, the climate change nonsense is infecting more than us. I'll have a word, you won't believe it, about Oxford University. And I've got some extraordinary stuff to show you about climate activists in Britain. We'll go to Israel 
to look at this amazing decision by Penny Wong, Labor will not recognize West Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And we'll talk to an Israeli MP in Tel Aviv. The latest from Britain with David Maddox, it's bordering on political slaughter over there. And what about Chinese Communist Party police in Australia? They're here, all right. We say it as it is. Nothing woke here and there won't be tonight. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. There are so many things happening in the world today that people, as I've said before, quietly reflect, reflect a sense of hopelessness. Lynette has written to me today, amongst many others, saying, Alan, I've lost hope for the future of the world. Children are lied to and brainwashed from preschool. Their parents have been convinced that we have to save the planet for their children at any cost. She says, I've listened to you and many highly qualified scientists and politicians speak for many years. My children who are highly educated and were once conservative look at me as if I'm crazy. When I try to tell them what is going on in the world, she says, I cannot see any comeback from here. Is there anyone who can stand up and tell the truth? As you know, it's illegal to tell the truth. Where will a survivor come from, a saviour come from, or are we gone? Well, Lynette, this is the station of the truth. More of that in a moment. But I offer Lynette's message by way of introduction to the flood crisis. That might seem strange, but stay with me. As I speak to you, there are hundreds of thousands of Australians living a life of uncertainty as floods tackle a new geographical area of Australia. What was once Gympie and Queensland and then areas of Brisbane and the Gold Coast and then the horrific experiences at Lismore, all I might add forgotten by politicians, well, now there are great swathes of regional New South Wales, Victoria, and even Tasmania under attack. People are living in fear of what tomorrow might bring. There is a warning today that thunderstorms and up to 100 millimetres of rain could hit communities already impacted by floods in southern and western New South Wales. Of course, you must not drive through floodwaters. Don't. But many rescues have already been made of people who thought their car could make it. What's worse, strong winds are being forecast that could bring down trees and impact homes in flood zones. In Victoria, the rain, which battered the state last week and into the weekend, has continued despite some clear skies in recent days. Yesterday, Victoria took stock of the damage already caused and the warnings were stark. This is going to take a lot of weeks. And as Premier Daniel Andrews has said, this is far from over. The freight industry is warning that there might be delays in moving goods around the country due to the flooding and the closure of many roads in New South Wales and Victoria. 150 kilometres of the Sturt Highway between Sydney and Adelaide is closed due to flooding of the Murrumbidgee River in the Riverina. A section of the Newell Highway, which runs from the Queensland border to the Murray River, is also closed. The freight task in Australia at the moment is very difficult. At Narandra, at the junction of the Sturt and Newell Highways, access in three directions has been cut off by days of flooding. The focus, though, is on the beautiful and historic Achuka, on the banks of the Murray River and the Campaspe River in Victoria. The border town of Moama is adjacent on the northern side of the Murray River that puts it in New South Wales. Ironically, Achuka lies within Yorta Yorta country, and Yorta Yorta means meeting of the waters. Well, that's happened. Echuca is one of the most beautiful places I've ever visited. In the 1870s, it was Australia's largest inland port, the point of shortest distance between the Murray River 
and the major city of Melbourne. The steam-driven paddle boats would arrive at the 332-metre-long Redgum Achuka Wharf, and they're still there today, the paddle boats, for tourism. But Achuka is being smashed. And extraordinary efforts are being made to save up to 2,000 houses from the second and most dangerous wave of flood water to hit this beautiful Murray River tourist destination. Achuka's Martin Street has been transformed from a cul-de-sac where you could walk onto farmland into a swamp. Properties close to the river show watermarks of up to a metre on their walls. But people young and old have come from everywhere. Volunteers building a 2.5 metre high, 2.5 kilometre long levee with dirt and sandbags, all trying to save Echuca. So far, 300 people have fled the town. Another 3,000 are on standby to leave, but dozens of volunteers, look at them. Look at them shoveling sand into makeshift sacks. Children, retirees, teenagers, preparing to sit end of year exams, they're all there. Our thoughts are with them. Which brings me back to my opening comment and the email from Lynette about children being lied to and brainwashed because this is a golden opportunity now to belt the climate change drum and push the net zero carbon dioxide narrative. Though as Professor Ian Plymer has told us on this program, no one has ever proven that human emissions of carbon dioxide drive global warming. But here's the rub. And the reason why people like Lynette are worried about the brainwashing of their kids claiming that we have destroyed the planet. The truth is there is nothing unusual about today's floods, bushfires or droughts. Written flood records go back to biblical times. Geological records go back for epochs. Population growth means more people are affected by weather extremes. But there is no evidence that floods and droughts are getting worse. El Nino droughts have been recognised as far back as 1525. But on the flood front in 1852, the flood in the Murrumbidgee River swept away the entire town of Gundagai, 1852. In the 1893 La Nina, the Bremer River, Ipswich is on the Bremer River in Queensland, the flood destroyed the entire Victoria Bridge and the Indrapilly Bridge in Brisbane. In 1916, in Clermont, nearly a thousand kilometres northwest of Brisbane, 60 people were killed when a flash flood destroyed the whole township, 1916. 2022 is another London New Year. We're entitled to expect big floods. And dare I say it, as one who's advocated for years and years the harvesting of water, the best practical way to cope with future floods and droughts is to build more dams and raise dam walls. But Australia hasn't done it and isn't doing it. And now the ALP Green government is ensuring even worse outcomes by damaging food and electricity production with net zero nonsense. So yes, Lynette, you'll get the truth on this program. Remember, we've wasted billions of dollars on Flannery desalination plants because Flannery said it wouldn't rain again. Sensible governments would build more dams to moderate the La Nina floods and provide insurance against the inevitable El Nino droughts. Future generations won't forgive our ideological obsessions. But in government today, common sense is replaced by nonsense. Let me preface my comments by saying that there are, I don't know how many, but some eminent political and legal figures who'll disagree with what I'm about to say. But as you know, on this program, 
we tolerate disagreement. Penny Wong, I believe, has done an excellent job so far in a very difficult international environment in the portfolio of foreign affairs. However, there is always an however. On Monday night, Penny Wong said, and I quote, the former government made the decision to recognise West Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. No decision to change that has been made by the government, unquote. In what can only be described as a clumsy and unacceptable handling of the issue, the overturning of the Morrison government's decision to recognise West Jerusalem as the capital of Israel was published on the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade website when no such decision had been made. In fact, the government denied any decision to change had been made. Repeating, Penny Wong, Monday night. The former government made the decision to recognise West Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. No decision to change that has been made by the government, unquote. Yet the decision to change that was published on the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade website, when, according to Penny Wong, no decision had been made. But on Tuesday morning, Penny Wong announced, quote, today, the government has reaffirmed Australia's previous and long-standing position that Jerusalem is a final status issue. That just means well, after peace between Israel and Palestine is determined and all that's divvied up, then we'll decide. A final status issue that should be resolved as part of any peace negotiations between Israel and the Palestinian peoples. This reverses the Morrison government's recognition of West Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, unquote. In other words, the Minister for Foreign Affairs is retrospectively validating a previous post on the website of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, which prompts the question, who's running the joint? It's nothing more than a concession to the Labor left, but importantly, it achieves nothing and it may well cost a lot. Now, with everything else going on in the world, Penny Wong has to now confront a major diplomatic dispute. The government has decided to no longer recognise West Jerusalem as Israel's capital. The Israeli Prime Minister facing an election Tuesday week has described the Australian government's decision as a gratuitous insult. Well, an insult, all right, to a key economic and strategic ally of Australia. And remember, an ally whose intelligence sharing with Australia has prevented at least one terrorist attack against Australians that we know about. What's more, it coincided with an official Jewish religious holiday. And I repeat, only hours after the government had insisted Australia's position on West Jerusalem had not changed. Penny Wong has done a very good job in difficult circumstances. This is unlike her. Have the weights been placed on her? Well, joining me from Tel Aviv is a member of the Israeli parliament, Sharon Haskell. She formerly served as a member of the Knesset for Likud, the governing party, she was its youngest member. But in December 2020, she joined a new party, New Hope, and was again elected to the Knesset. Sharon Haskell lived in Australia for six years, where she worked as a veterinary nurse in the Bondi Vet Animal Hospital. She's an advocate of medical, uh, med uh, medical cannabis, or medical cannabis usage, as am I, a spirited supporter of free markets and civil liberties, and has made the very simple but arresting point. And I quote her, interesting to see that the most important thing for the Australian Labor Party was to tell the Jewish people that the 3,000 year old tradition of Jerusalem as their cultural, religious and traditional centre, the heart of their identity, their capital is not theirs. Well, Sharon joins me now from Tel Aviv. Sharon, thank you so much for your time. Really good to talk to you. You've made the point 
with the repudiation by the Labour government to no longer recognise West Jerusalem as Israel's capital is like telling the Australian Aboriginal community that we don't recognise Uluru as their cultural and religious centre. It's a fair point. Absolutely. I mean, uh, when you look uh, on, on history, for, more, for thousands of years, Jerusalem has been uh, and, and still today and will forever be our cultural, our religious and our capital. Jerusalem is part of our identity. More important so, this uh, uh, announcement comes at a Jewish holiday called the Feast of Tabernacle, where Jews and people from all around the world come to Jerusalem to celebrate this holiday. This is a ho the holiday of Jerusalem. And we receive from Australia one of the st our strongest ally that we consider a, a great friend of Israel, an announcement like that on a high holiday, a Jewish holiday where we celebrate Jerusalem. This is an absolute insult to Israelis. Uh, Israeli received it in a very... Uh, you know, many Israelis are quite angered uh, yeah. about this announcement. Well, well, yeah, can, and, and uh, can, I, can I just there, Sharon, apologise on behalf of many people in Australia who don't believe, even if they wanted to do it, that this is the way things should be done. This is a gratuitous insult. I think your Prime Minister has got it right. You know the political scene in Australia. What do you think has prompted this to occur? Well, this is, uh, that's really sad, you know. Um, I, I really believe that this is uh, a move in order to, to please some, uh, uh, you know, uh, political uh, activist, uh, the extreme uh, left in Australia. Definitely. Uh, who unfortunately, un unfortunately, we see not just in Australia, but also in America and in Europe, uh, a rise of anti-Semitism in the extreme left from all around the world, where they have a double standard against Israel, where they time after time make comments um, against Israel and against the Jewish people who are here in Israel in their homeland. Uh, it, it, it is very, very sad uh, uh, to see it. And it's very sad to see Australia and the Australian uh, foreign minister, uh, Penny Wong, uh, falling for this populistic uh, sort of uh, uh, pleasing those voters instead of standing up for a moral compass. Absolutely. You need to you, understand. You, you've made the point. It's, you've made the point, though, the Australian Labor Party. If now the Australian Labor Party government believe Tel Aviv is the capital, how are Australian political leaders going to meet your prime minister, your president, your ministers, members of parliament, because they all work in Jerusalem? Absolutely. Tel Aviv is not the capital of Israel. Jerusalem has always been for thousands of years and will forever be the capital of Israel. We work there. The prime minister uh, 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 worked there. The president worked there. It would be extremely difficult uh, if they will not come uh, to our capital city uh, in order to continue the cooperation, continue to build those bridges. Mm. Um, Sharon, Sharon, just how, you know, so speaking to you here, this is sort of 24 hours after this has happened, how wounded do Jewish people feel and Israeli people feel, given that they believe that Australia was their friend? Well, you know, it, it's quite hurtful uh, because Australia has always been such a strong ally and friend to the state of Israel. Uh, this come at a time where 
you know, just in the last month, uh, four Israelis were killed uh, by Palestinians. Uh, we have a dispute here in Israel, and we have a territorial dispute. But the core of this dispute is religious and it is cultural. And that announcement give a very strong uh, uh, support to Palestinians who are actually, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, cr uh, committed a few terrorist acts mm. during the last month as well. Mm. Um, it, it's very, it, it is very hurtful. Uh, and it's very sad to see I'm Australia sure. act okay. in this way. You see, the foreign minister, um, Sharon Sondra, the foreign minister has failed to articulate any national interest reason for this major reversal of Australian foreign policy. And you and I have said perhaps to placate the Labor left, but worse, this is the bit that is awful really, and I'm speaking as Australian. They failed to inform Israel before announcing such a decision. So Sharon, along with the foreign policy insult to Israel, we obviously now have to add discourtesy. Yeah, and, and, and you know what? The Australian Labor Party know that Israel is a beacon of light in our region. They know that Israel is the only stable democracy in the Middle East. They know that Israel is a moral compass that share the same values as Australian people, those values of equality, uh, those values of, 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 of freedom, of rights to minorities, freedom of religion, and, uh, uh, you know, women's rights, children's rights, more so rights to the LGBT community. We respect and we, they find refuge in Israel while all around the Middle East, the LGBT community is being persecuted. The Palestinian Authority is it put them in jail. They're being murdered in the West Bank and in Gaza for the sole reason, mm. for, you know, well, uh, uh, for being part of this community. Yeah, they don't, they don't even believe in Israel. I mean, along with Iran and others, and others uh, who will be given very significant strength as a consequence of this decision, they believe that Israel should be blown off the map. I mean, your Prime Minister Lapid spent a year, a gap year here at a Jewish youth camp. I mean, he knows the scene. He was entitled mm -hmm. to respond by saying, we can only hope that the Australian government manages other matters more seriously and professionally. Look, I mean, given Israel, you've said it, I've said it, a loyal and trusted international friend. And given this insult that's been delivered to Australia, where Israel have provided us with technology, intelligence, counterterrorism, defence and so on, it's our closest and most reliable partner in the Middle East, from which many security threats to Australia, I might add, emanate. Has this decision put the relationship at risk? Well, uh, we will have to see in the near future uh, because uh, that statement make a very clear position for us Israeli where the Labour government is uh, settled on the Israeli-Palestinian issues. And it makes me very sad it shows that this government have a double standard. It shows that this government does not support Israel and back up the Palestinian Authority, even though, uh, you know, uh, uh, funding terrorism, even though, uh, uh, you know, they don't share those same values, even though, you know, Penny Wong, she's from the LGBT community. 
her community in the Palestinian territory is being persecuted by the Palestinian Authority. And she decided to stand by the Palestinian Authority more than to stand with yes. Israel and yes. uh, the moral compass that Israel shared yep. in this region. Yes. And so, uh, obviously, standing like that will have probably consequences and we'll have to see in the near, near future mm. how, how it plays. Well, Sharon, before we go, I just want to say to our viewers, a bit of history uh, is important here. When Australia first recognised the State of Israel under the Chifley Labor government in January 1949, Israel was in control of West Jerusalem. So that is the history of it and has been ever since. Sharon, we'll leave it there. It's very good to talk to you. I wish you well. I can understand the sense of offence that you and your fellow countrymen feel. I know you've got an election coming up in a fortnight, so I must wish you well there with the New Hope Party. Thank you for talking to us and I hope we Thank can talk so again. Thank you so much. I hope we can talk again. Thank you so much for inviting me to your show. It was a pleasure. Thank Isn't you. Isn't that lovely? There she is, Sharon Haskell. I mean, all of Israel's national institutions, from the Knesset to the Prime Minister's office, the Supreme Court, all are in Jerusalem. This does not make sense other than as a cave-in to the Labor left. Now, there's been a trade-off here. Have Wong and co said to the left, we'll need your support down the track for X, Y and Z legislation. Therefore, we'll actually make this concession to you. And in return, down the track, you will repay what we've done. Politics is a dirty game. I'm certain something like that has happened. There we are, there she is, Sharon Haskell from uh, Jerusalem, from Tel Aviv, actually not Jerusalem, from Tel Aviv. And we'll talk to her again if the occasion arises. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Perhaps things have to get worse in the West, that's the West of the world, Western civilization, free world, democracies, have to get worse before they get better. Unfortunately, it looks like we're seeing things getting a lot worse at Oxford University, the oldest university in the English-speaking world, where some of the world's best and brightest minds go, apparently now, to become woke activists. It's an intellectual tragedy. Get this, recently, Oxford's Vice-Chancellor, Louise Richardson, announced plans to decolonize science and maths degrees in June 2021, last year, whatever the hell that means. I just can't believe this is happening. Christchurch College, Oxford's grandest college, says it, quote, runs compulsory sessions for all students covering topics including diversity, respect and anti-racism, and staff involved in, for example, admissions and recruitment receive appropriate training, unquote. Oxford's Worcester College, my old college, hosted Wilberforce Academy last September. It's a one-week intensive residual program aimed at students and young professionals with a passion to serve Jesus Christ in a variety of vocations. Well, Worcester College canceled a second booking following complaints from activists. Notice how they're all about diversity and inclusion until it comes to Christianity. In 2016, students at the Oxford Union a private student debating society, voted 245 to 212 in favour of removing the statue of Cecil Rhodes. On climate, it gets even worse, if that's possible. Oxford has announced, and I quote, landmark plans to divest formally from the fossil fuel industry, unquote. But students are saying it's not enough. Oxford, Oxford's climate protesters have disturbed career fairs, lectures and other events on campus. Earlier this year, some student protesters drank crude oil 
to condemn Oxford University for taking funding from fossil fuel companies. But it gets better, or should that be worse? According to an email sent to me by someone associated with Oxford University College, the university is now preparing for energy shortages as winter approaches. In the email written by one Angela Unsworth MBE, the bursar of University College at Oxford, the email is entitled Energy Conservation in the College, Heating and Lighting. And it reads, the colleges take part in an energy purchasing consortium, an arrangement for buying energy. Now, she says, while much is bought for this year, there remains a proportion still to purchase and the costs are soaring. It's already four times more expensive than last year. And by the end of the year, we anticipate it'll be another four times as expensive again. You dopes. That's what you get when you ban fossil fuels. And Australians can expect similar price hikes over the next couple of years as a result of similar ideological stupidity. The email from University College Oxford continues in part, quote, to help protect supplies, we can plan to decrease our demand at particular times of the day as a college and as individuals. If we do this, it may help to protect the network and prevent power outages should they become more likely, unquote. It finishes by saying to address the risk of blackouts and extremely expensive energy, the college will replace light fittings with ones that are controlled by movement so they can't be left on accidentally, fit intelligent sensors to our heating systems to ensure they turn off when people are not in the room, encourage students to work in communal spaces, university and college rather than in their rooms, prohibit the use of personal high energy items like microwaves, encourage the use of shared kitchens where possible, encourage college members to turn lights off when rooms are not in use, encourage the whole community to unplug devices as soon as they're charged and not leave them charging overnight, turn down screen brightness and turn them off when not in use. And the college even said, with daytime temperatures still around 17 degrees and average overnight temperatures of 10 to 11 degrees, we're asking ourselves, would we put the heating on at home? And the answer's coming back, no. Therefore, we're holding off here too. The college clarified that, quote, this is not an exhaustive list. Thank God for that. There is only so much stupidity we can handle. My message to these climate activists at Oxford is simple. Don't be hypocrites. Freeze during the night. Don't charge your iPhone and forget driving daddy's Tesla. You either commit to life without fossil fuels or stop your pathetic protests and admit we can't live a 21st century lifestyle without oil, gas and coal. Last night when I made further comment on the crisis in British politics, I made the point that the United Kingdom has the world's sixth largest economy by GDP, the eighth largest by purchasing power. So we're all indirectly affected by this mess. Many of the policies Liz Truss campaigned on during the leadership contest have been abandoned. Her judgment is shot. And the UK, I said, is in a state of political rigor mortis. But I did make the point that rigor mortis is a temporary condition lasting about eight hours. Liz Truss has lasted longer than that. She's still there, but for how much longer? She's apologised for, quote, going, quote, going too far and too fast. She said, I do want to accept responsibility and say sorry for the mistakes that have been made. 
I put in place a new chancellor, with a, come to him in a minute, with a new strategy to restore economic stability. I do think it's the mark of an honest politician who says, yes, I've made a mistake. I've addressed that mistake. And now we need to deliver for the people. Well, David Maddox is our man in London. He's the political editor of Express Online. You can read him at express.co.uk. It's a great read. He joins me with an exclusive story that the new yeah. chancellor, you're saying, Jeremy Hunt, has told Liz Truss to sack her political allies in a brutal reshuffle. And are you saying the leader of the House, Penny Mordaunt, may be the only member to survive the chop from Liz Truss's cabinet. David, this is better than Faulty Towers. It's, uh, it's, it, it's uh, yeah. Uh, I remember when I was growing up, uh, when I was studying literature, they, they um, tried to explain to me what tragic comedy was. And, yes. uh, and I think I've finally discovered what it is. I know. Tragedy meets comedy. Yes. Uh, I mean, it is unbelievable. It's absolutely stunning. But I mean, the bottom line here is that... Um, Liz Trust now is uh, is what one MP described to me as pre no donna prime minister in name only, yeah. and uh, it's uh, you know Jeremy Hunt has basically taken control. It's a full on coup. So if Jeremy uh, Hunt is organising a reshuffle, though, if he's organising a reshuffle, as you say, yeah. the prime minister has to agree because she's too weak to not agree. So does yeah. Hunt think he's a chance of being prime minister? Yes, clearly, and I think this is uh, it, it being done in stages. So what they do is uh, they've torn up her to policy platform, her tax cuts and all the rest of it. Uh, they then clear out all her friends and allies from the Cabinet and other ministerial posts, I mean, going much deeper down as well, uh, leave her totally isolated in a few weeks' time with a new Cabinet mostly made up of Rishi Sunak supporters, including Rishi Sunak, I should say, apparently, uh, will then tell her it's time to go and they but, will try to appoint David, somebody David, instead. David, you've written this. It's all over the papers. Uh, he had, she had rather, a cabinet meeting yesterday. Has she got all these people sitting yeah. around the table, sitting around the table knowing that she's going to sack them all? When's that going to happen? Well, um, I'm told, and this is why I broke the story last night, that the list landed with her last night. And obviously she's uh, looking at it and, and struggling to know what to do because it's, it's obvious that she doesn't want to get rid of her friends and allies. Uh, uh, but she seems to be completely in the uh, thrall of... Uh, Jeremy Hunt at the moment. I mean, which, uh, the, I mean, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. Have the 1922 committee, committee met Liz Truss? Has anyone told her face to face, sorry, you've run out of all credibility, your judgment's crook, everything you stood for has been dismantled, you've got to go? Uh, Graham Brady, who chairs it, so Graham Brady, I should say, uh, uh, met her on Monday. He also then, uh, uh, we've just learned, met. Um, uh, Jeremy Hunt, the new Chancellor, the new unofficial Prime Minister, uh, yesterday, uh, and he's expected to meet Liz Truss again today. And I, I think it's just a matter of time now. It's it's yeah. uh, whether they think... The problem, the problem is that MPs do not want, Tory MPs do not want 
a leadership contest again. No, I do not want no. to go through all this again. I no. want to find a candidate to unify behind. I think, though, personally, this attempt at a reshuffle will prevent any attempt at a, a coronation. I think it will be all-out civil war in the Tory party mm. oh, if, absolutely. if it goes ahead. A absolutely. Just coming back, I mean, Jake Thrupp mentioned here on this program the other night, and I know you were a great help to him over there at the Conservative Party conference. I thank you for that. But he said, and I think he's right, Truss's first blunder was the ill-fated mini-budget. I mean, there was no need for it, was there? No, and he was absolutely right. It was great having Jake up here, actually. Uh, really uh, good fun. Mm. He, was, uh, he certainly, he certainly uh, came to the right conference for his first yes. one. We'll never yes. get more exciting than that. No. But uh, it was <laughs> never, ever get more exciting than that. But, uh, yes, I mean, she needn't have rushed into it. She could have waited until near the end of the year, till November. Uh, she could have done it in a much more measured way. There could have been papers explaining what was going to happen. She didn't even have to bring all those measures in until next year. I no. mean, they could have announced them in the spring next year, mm -hmm. having properly worked through them. But, but, and, if, and but if, 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 if Hunt has ditched all her tax-cutting promises and is now going to cut mm. government spending in all departments to make up yeah. for a budget black hole of about $100 billion, how long, I mean, seriously, how long can Truss stay in Downing Street with no authority whatever if she's just doing as others tell her? She, she can stay as long as uh, others put up with it and wish to wish it to go on. I mean, there's a, uh, the, the reason she's there is to give them time to work out which one they want to take over from her. That's it. There's no other reason that she's there. And what's your, and, what's mean, your it's, insight, it's what's your insight on that? Well, currently, as we speak to you tonight, well, what's your intelligence on that? Yeah. To take, I mean, the, the, I know I saw so, a poll. Um, I, I saw a poll from the Conservative people, yeah. and they overwhelmingly want Boris. Um, I then saw yes. a, another poll where they're talking about Rishi Sunak and Penny Mordaunt. Where are we tonight? Mm. So the uh, bring back Boris petition is now well over ten thousand. Uh, the MPs are debating whether it's Rishi Sunak, Penny Mordaunt, or Jeremy Hunt. Looks like Ben Wallace is now out of the picture for one reason or another, uh, mainly because he disagrees with defence cuts, but uh, but we'll see. Um, the problem, as I said, the problem is they can't decide which one. But if it was um, Rishi Sunak... If they want a coronation, they're going to have to find somebody. Yeah, I mean, if it's Rishi Sunak, notwithstanding his talent and his ability and his charisma and all that stuff, no, he was the bloke, he's the bloke who put the knife into Boris... And the Conservative Party, yeah. I mean, that'll be civil war. The Conservative Party are blaming him for all this mess that is a consequence of Boris Johnson being knifed. I, I spoke to a cabinet minister last night who told me bluntly that if, uh, this is a cabinet minister who's about to get uh, reshuffled anyway, so we'll soon be an ex-cabinet minister, quite possibly, but told me bluntly that if it's Rishi, Penny or uh, Jeremy, they will, there will be a contest and there will be uh, a hell of a fight uh, because they won't accept any of them. They're all from the kind of remainery mm. uh, left yes. side of the party yes. now. Yes. And, well, uh, and, and, they, and they just won't accept it. Well, I understand, I understand that in the Jeremy Hunt reshuffle that he's obviously presented to Liz Truss and whatever, all the Brexiteers have been kicked into the long grass. Yep, yep. Jacob, 
Suella, uh, Braverman, Home Secretary, Jacob Rees-Mogg, the Business Secretary, uh, James Cleverly, the Foreign Secretary, Jake Berry, the Chairman. There's a whole long list of them. I mean, if you go onto the government website, uh, look at the list of the Cabinet and take out Penny Morden's name, pretty much everyone else goes. So, Didn't Kwasi Kwarteng I mean, learn from the Times newspaper that he was going to be sacked when he was on his way to number 10? Apparently, yes. Yes. I mean, this all sounds Which, like civil uh, war to me, not peace. What? No, it's certainly not peace. And and and, I, and actually, I'm I'm convinced now that this is a coup. I mean, they lost the they lost the leadership election over the summer, that wing of the party, uh, and now Liz, because of Liz Truss's utter incompetence and blundering, they're taking the opportunity to move in and uh, wipe the slate clean. But you know, the Brexiteers in the party are not going to take it lying down. And the majority of the membership are with the Brexiteers. So it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I think we I mean, I, I genuinely think, I was talking to Nigel Farage last night. I was on his show last night, but I was talking to him after. And uh, I was saying to him, I genuinely believe that the Conservative Party may split in two on this. It's uh, actually properly split. You just not got to just, wonder how much of this humiliation, how much of this humiliation, can Liz Truss wear? Well, let's wrap this up for now. You tell me this time. Come on, come on. You tell me this time next week when I talk to you, who will be prime minister? I'm I'm astonished that Liz Truss is still there. I, I'm I am absolutely astonished. I don't believe she will be there next week. Uh, I would guess that Jeremy Hunt is probably a narrow favourite, but I think it's unlikely. I think the the only reason Liz Trust will be there is because they're running a leadership contest. Mm. All right, David. It's appalling. It's very sad, really. A great party, uh, you know, that sponsored some wonderful... I mean, this is the world's oldest party. 344 years of history. Never anything like this. All right, but you can keep up with David. He's outstanding and he's right at the heart of it all, knows them all and hears and talks to them. But you can read David. It's at Express. I've got to get this right. It's express.co.uk, express.co.uk, and you get it there. David, always great to talk to you. Talk to you next week. I hope there's better news. There is. David Maddox in London. David Maddox in London. In the light of what I've been saying tonight, and it can't be said often enough, Lynette made the point How many are there who'll stand up and tell the unvarnished truth, freed from the chains of ideology? I don't resile from saying simply, this nation is going to be ruined by ideological rubbish. I've spoken many times here to Michael Schellenberger, a world-renowned environmental activist. For 20 years, Michael admits he sprouted this climate change nonsense with ideological zeal. But two years ago, he wrote a book, Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. He apologised in that book, and I quote, for the climate scare we've created over the past 30 years. He wrote, it's not even our most serious environmental problem, unquote. You think of where we are today. Mums and dads of another generation listening to me tonight hear this stuff sprouted by their children endlessly, and they wonder how it's come about and what they can do. Michael Schellenberger in his book wrote, quote, once you realise how badly misinformed we've been, It's hard not to feel duped. Well, for years I have called this a national economic suicide note. 
Michael Schellenberger wrote, quote, the transition to renewables was doomed because, pardon me, modern industrial people, no matter how romantic they are, don't want to return to pre-modern life. He wrote, I quote, the reason renewables can't power modern civilization is because they were never meant to. And as we're swamped with electric vehicle madness, Schellenberger wrote, quote, to replace the entire transportation sector with electric cars, you'd need to go from 18% renewables, wind and solar, to something like 150%. That is, even if you thought you could store the stuff. Now remember, 583 coal-fired power stations are under construction or planned in China. 583. A stack of them in India, Indonesia, Turkey, Vietnam and Japan. Coal-fired power stations, none in Australia. Most of these in Asia are using Australian coal. What's worse for Australia, with over 40% of the world's uranium reserves, we don't have one nuclear reactor. But 30 countries are operating 450 nuclear reactors for electricity generation around the world. Here, it's illegal to operate a nuclear reactor. But 60 nuclear plants are under construction around the world in 15 countries. Russia, the United States and Japan are building new ones. We're the only G20 power without nuclear power. Michael Schellenberger says opposition to nuclear is like a superstitious religious belief. Now remember, these beliefs are held by the people who are running our country. Schellenberger admits he was for a long time anti-nuclear. Quote, I changed my mind when I realised you can't power a modern economy on solar and wind, unquote. Now remember, Albanese and Bowen have legislated for this very future for us. Michael Schellenberger says that getting nuclear right would make renewables redundant. So here comes the rub. Is that why some don't want nuclear? Too many of its advocates, renewable advocates, are rent seekers in bed with government on renewable energy. Nuclear wipes out renewables, they're done for. Shouldn't every advocate of renewable energy have to declare their financial interest in renewables? Only this week, Michael Schellenberger has drawn attention to climate activists in Britain who blocked highways because cars emit carbon dioxide. Let's have a look at these videos and wonder what is becoming of our world. It's extraordinary. Stop shaking your heads. Because other activists, oh, you're not going to believe this, have poured milk onto the floors of supermarkets because livestock emit methane. Have a look at this video. Isn't this vandalism? I mean, the stuff is staggering, but where the hell are the security people, for God's sake? And of course, it's based on ignorance. Other ignorant lunatics have thrown tomato soup at Van Gogh's sunflowers because climate change is more important than art or something. Have a look at this vandalism. What is worth more? 
or life? Is it worth more than food? Worth more than justice? Are you more concerned about the protection of a painting or the protection of our planet and people? Oh, God. See, they've been brainwashed and they're angry. And I suppose if I was that age, I would be too, if you were taught that there's no future in the world because we are destroying the planet. This is the price we are now paying worldwide for not standing up to this rubbish and arguing the other case. Our leaders, political and corporate, have failed us. And this is where we are. My point is this. People in the UK are at risk of dying from natural gas shortages. But the mob you've just seen, the Just Stop Oil hooligans, think it's outrageous that the British government is desperately trying to produce more gas for its people. As Michael Schellenberger pointed out, quote, without more natural gas, there could be three hour blackouts, which would threaten the operation of medical equipment and thus the lives of vulnerable people, unquote. But this is the point, a disturbing and dangerous point. Quoting Schellenberger, the various media stunts appeared authentically grassroots, as if they just arrived and did it naturally, you see. But in fact, they were financed, he says, by a $1 million grant from a philanthropic group called Climate Emergency Fund, which is funded by the heirs to the Getty and Rockefeller fortunes, all deriving from oil, unquote. Work that out. And that fund and those who've received money have been cheered on by the Secretary General of the United Nations and much of the mainstream media. Gutless politicians of followers, not leaders. Schellenberg ominously argues, quote, what lies beyond climate fanaticism and narcissism is an apocalyptic religion born of nihilism, unquote. And this is what worries the older generation, doesn't it? The sense of nihilism. Some kids, it's a philosophy in which you believe that nothing in the world has a real existence. You reject all religious and moral principles in the belief that life is meaningless. Human life has no purpose. And that's exactly the way these young people are behaving. The key question is one I have raised often. Who are these climate fanatics? And how can their power over Western cultural and political life be reduced? Before we go, something to consider. Remember down south, Victoria's police force shot rubber bullets at peaceful anti-lockdown protesters late last year. And in Canberra, ASIO now says up to 40% of its counter-terrorism cases involve right-wing activists. And to the West, WA's police force is now trying to recruit police officers from overseas. What the hell? All that we know, but who is worrying about this? This week, the Epoch Times reported that, quote, China has been caught running covert police operations in Australia, unquote. Even the ABC admits it's true. According to the ABC, China's Public Security Bureau has established an official, quote, contact point in Sydney in 2018, four years ago. Now, the contact point is designed to keep a, quote, repressive check on Australians of Chinese descent. The move was announced at a ceremony in Wenzhou, China in 2019, but received little coverage by international media at the time. It turns out China isn't just doing this sort of stuff in Australia. 
According to a report titled 110 Overseas, Chinese Transnational Policing Gone Wild by international human rights group Safeguard Defenders, the Chinese Communist Party has set up, quote, at least 54 police-run service centres across five continents. Some stations have already been, quote, implicated in collaborating with Chinese police in carrying out policing operations on foreign soil, so the report noted. The stations have a, quote, more sinister goal as they contribute to, quote, resolutely cracking down on all kinds of illegal and criminal activities involving overseas Chinese, unquote. Is this why an estimated 230,000 overseas Chinese nationals have been, quote, persuaded to return, unquote, to China to face criminal charges between April 21 and July this year? As the chair of the Federation for a Democratic China, Dr. Chin Jin, who's based in Australia, has said, the CCP's long-armed jurisdiction takes place under the noses of Western countries, which is the result of the West opening its door to thieves for a long time, unquote. He goes on, the West's cognitive ability and level of awareness of the Chinese Communist Party is so low that it's numb to its long-armed jurisdiction and unknowingly acquiesces to the infringement of the West's sovereignty, unquote. He says, Beijing is the world's largest criminal organisation, but most, most Western countries don't realise this, unquote. And he said, as soon as Australia wakes up, Beijing's extra police presence will disappear, quote, like a monster in the dark in broad daylight, unquote. Now, this is heavy stuff. We deserve to be told whether it's correct instead of government greeting it with silence. We're entitled to know. So to Foreign Minister Penny Wong and Defence Minister Richard Miles, what are you going to do about this? We have to protect Australians of Chinese descent who speak their mind about the egregious crimes of the Chinese Communist Party. We need to send a message to Beijing that we'll not tolerate foreign forces in this country, and we need to do it soon before the Chinese Communist Party uses our cluelessness and apathy to their advantage. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thank you for your company. Hope you've enjoyed the program. Fred Paul's up next. I'll see you tomorrow night at eight o'clock. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.